Good morning, friends. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here in Thrive, and along with Reagan Gilliland, who's another one of our associate pastors at Lover's Lane and also happens to be my wife, we get to co-pastor this community that we call Thrive here at Lover's Lane. We are glad you're with us at Lover's Lane United Methodist Church this morning where our mission statement is loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. And we hope that you experience that both in what you hear and in the actions of our church this morning. If this is your first Sunday with us, be sure to let us know that you're with us. Uh, If you're not watching us on our website right now, we also stream on Facebook and YouTube, but if you're watching us on the website, go ahead and fill out a connection form. Let us know that you're here and that you'd like to receive communication from us. You can hear more about what we're doing as the people of Lover's Lane, and if you're not watching on the website, go ahead and head over to llumc.org at some point this morning and fill out one of those forms for us so that we can be connected with you. We are continuing in a sermon series this morning called Become the Gospel as we uh, live in this Easter season, and as you can see on your screen, today's topic is justice, and there's a lot to talk about today, so I'm just going to get straight into our scripture this morning. This is going to, to help us along our way in our conversation around justice, we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, and to orient you a little bit as to where the story comes, this is the first recorded moments of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of Luke. So Luke tells us how Jesus is born, and then as an adult, Luke tells us that Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he's uh, tempted and tormented by the devil for 40 days, and when he survives that season, he's prepared to go into public ministry, and this is what Luke says to begin Jesus' public ministry as an adult. Now, Luke's going to say, you know, Jesus is often he's been teaching and doing some things, but this is the part that Luke thinks is important for us to hear. So let's go to Luke now, beginning in verse 14. Then Jesus, Luke says, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. This was the region that Jesus was from. It's the northern region of Israel. And a a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. So he was a really popular guest preacher at all the local churches there. When he came to Nazareth, that's his hometown, you might be wondering if you've you know, seen Christmas Eve services, you go, I thought Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth, right? He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. So this is a customary practice in synagogues in Jesus' time, where on the Sabbath day, someone would stand up and read the Scripture and then teach on that Scripture, kind of like we do today. But So Jesus is going to fulfill that role this morning. And the role and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. This is one of the Old Testament prophetic texts that we have in our Bibles. And Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he's reading from Isaiah. Because the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It's the word of God for the people of God, and so we say, thanks be to God. 
So I've got a few things that I want to talk about this morning. This is one of those scriptures that we could spend days and weeks on. Uh, Books have been written on the verses that we just heard read. Uh, And so I am in no way attempting an exhaustive understanding of of this text this morning, but I can share with you a few things that I felt were revealed to me this week that I think are helpful for us in our conversation around justice. What does it mean to be someone who walks in in the way of Jesus, specifically in the realm of justice? So the whole premise of this series, Become the Gospel, is that we have to move beyond simply thinking about Jesus and begin living like Jesus. That's what we've been talking about in terms of mercy or forgiveness in the weeks past. Um, And so I want to make clear at the beginning of this message that Jesus believes that our faith is about more than just what we think. Jesus is using very specific language in the words that we just heard. In the words from Isaiah, there's very specific language. This isn't Jesus inventing it. This is Jesus reading from the Old Testament. This is how faith and belief has been understood in our Judeo-Christian tradition for millennia. He says words like the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. Now, these are words that work on two levels. On one hand... They're words that work on the spiritual level, right? You can be spiritually poor, poor in spirit. You can be spiritually captive, captive to your sin. You can be spiritually blind, blind to the truth that God's trying to reveal to you. Or you can even be spiritually oppressed by systems or by people or by forces that you feel like are oppressing you. But these are also words that work on a physical, real level, right? There are poor people in the world. Jesus is talking about bringing good news to the poor, people living in poverty. There are people who are captive, prisoners, enslaved, in chains. There are people who are blind, suffering from physical ailments or, or, or from an inability to see what's really happening around them, both, both in the physical and figurative sense in our world. And there are people who are oppressed, crushed by systems and by people who would seek to destroy them and to hold them down. Jesus uses these terms because they work on both levels, because they are both spiritual terms and physical terms. This is about the kingdom of heaven and the real world. So I want to say this to begin. This is the foundation. If we're going to talk about justice, we have to understand this. Jesus connects the kingdom of God to the real world, and our faith should too. If our faith is going to just live in our heads or in our hearts where we can think and feel about God all day but not do anything to establish the kingdom of God, to to love God's people in a real, tangible way, then we're not following in the footsteps of Jesus. I love the way that Dr. Cornell West puts it. Dr. Cornell West is a a famous African-American philosopher, theologian, civil rights activist, and he says it this way. This is kind of a mantra for me in my life recently in, in my work in justice. Justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. See, we talk about love. We talk about love in church all of the time. We talk about how important it is for the world to experience God's love. But until we put that love to work in public, until we put some skin on it, until we understand that it's not just about talking about the poor, it's about loving the poor and bringing good news to the poor, until we can put love in public, then we don't really understand justice. Thank you, Dr. West, for your witness. So, 
we're going to keep moving this morning. Understanding that we can't divorce the physical from the spiritual, that for Jesus, the two are inherently connected. I want to share a, a quick anecdote with you. I was getting up to preach uh, one morning, and, and by the way, I hope that you are checking in on our chat. Uh, Jenny just posted that quote from Dr. West on, on our Facebook chat. I'm glad that you guys are here. Tiffany Wines, good to see you. Damar, good to see you. Pastor Sarah, thank you for being our online pastor this morning. So, I was getting up to preach one morning, getting up ready to guest preach, kind of like Jesus, um, not in my hometown, uh, but I was getting up to guest preach, and, and uh, I was going around the congregation saying, hey, how you doing, doing this, you know, smiling and handshaking, the things that we used to do, all the small talk and little things that we, that we miss right now, right? And um, I, I, I came up to one woman, hi, how are you? It's so good to see you in worship today. And, uh, and she said, uh, oh, are you preaching today? And I said, yes, ma'am. And I, my, my chest kind of swelled up. And I, I thought, wow, she's really excited to have me as the, the preacher this morning. And she, she looked at me and her kind of grin kind of dropped. And, and she said, well, I hope you don't get too political today. And I kind of said, uh, okay, I'm not even sure what I said, to be honest. I, I didn't say what I wanted to say in that moment because I had to be a good pastor. But I just sort of smiled and said, oh, okay. And I just walked away awkwardly, I'm sure. Um, I hope you don't get too political today. Yeah, it's the sentiment that I think was shared by the people of Nazareth. Um, we didn't read this part, but if you keep going in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus' time in that synagogue doesn't go too well. The people of Nazareth hear that there's this great guest preacher going around, and hey, you know it's Joseph's kid? It's, it's Jesus, the boy that we watched grow up here, and maybe he could come preach, and we hear he's doing some miracles and blessing people and performing healings. That's incredible. Yeah, we want that, so they bring him in, and they think they're going to get a nice, inspiring sermon and maybe a story about a dog and just feel real good and warm inside and then be sent home, and instead Jesus challenges the way they're living. He challenges them to see the people they don't want to see and to break the systems that are hurting people in their world. And they say, well, wait a second, this isn't what we bargained for. This is, this is kind of political stuff. We, we really just wanted you to bless us and heal us. And, and Jesus says, that's not what I'm here to do. You don't get just inspiring stories and warm fuzzies from me. You get challenging and convicting words too. You get to hear about what justice looks like in the world. I think sometimes we fall into the trap not only of believing we can separate the physical from the spiritual in our faith, but we also fall into this trap that, that says, um, maybe I can compartmentalize my faith life and my political life, or what I think about my faith and what I think about politics. That's why so many preachers today have a hard time saying anything about anything that happens in the real world because it feels like everything is political, right? I hope you don't get political today, preacher, which really means I hope you don't talk about anything happening in the real world. Yes, I want to say this from the, very, from, from the beginning of this conversation, though. I believe in separation of church and state. You might be saying, now, wait a second, Scott. No, I believe in separation of church and state. I'm a pastor. i got hot sports opinions about that, right? I think institutionally, that is an extremely good thing, and, and God bless America for having that be a pillar of our society. I think that is a good and righteous thing for us to have. But it's an institutional concept. And if we think we can separate church and state inside our own minds, inside our own hearts, inside our own faith, I think that we're being at best maybe illogical or really I think that's just impossible. Because the reality is, whether we like it or not, what we think about faith and what we think about politics, they're going to affect each other. And hear me clearly, I am in no way about to make a case that you have to vote a certain way if you're going to be a person following after Jesus. That's not my point. Here is my point. Do you want to hear what I'm trying to say? If our faith and our politics impact each other, 
If our faith, what we think about Jesus, becomes the way that we live and in the physical life here on earth, if our faith and, and, and the systems in this world, if they interact, the question is, how do they interact? How does my faith reform my politics and vice versa? So here's a question I have to ask myself all of the time. Do I reform my politics because of my faith? Or do I reform my faith because of my politics? Now, I'm not preaching down at anybody right now because I fail at this far too often. I have a, a, a socio or social ethic or a political stance that I really like, and so I go to my Bible and I try to find the cherry-picked verses that are going to help support whatever I want to vote for. And that's not the way that we're supposed to approach this. We do this all the time, but I don't think that's the way that our faith was designed to work. I think our faith should inform our political values. I think our faith should inform the way that we go to the ballot box. And again, not saying that you have to check a certain name or vote a certain way, but if we're not consciously thinking about the effect one has on the other, then I don't know that we're fully understanding what it means to be justice-oriented Christians. Because as Christians, we are called to hold our, our, our political systems and our elected officials to account. We're supposed to advocate for people that need advocating for. Jesus doesn't shy away from these kinds of messages, and we shouldn't either, regardless of political affiliation. I would say this. The goal is to consistently apply the justice of the gospel, our faith, regardless of our political affiliation. And to try to keep our faith out of our politics is just not possible. Christianity was never meant to be separated from politics or the public sphere. The Christian faith wasn't. In, in the early church, we refer to, even today, we refer to Jesus as Lord, right? That word Lord. It's the Greek word kurios. It was the word title for Caesar. Only Caesar was kurios in the Roman Empire. The good news that we preach, the gospel, right? It's the Greek word euangelion. That was the good news that was shared by Caesar. Caesar, the kurios, would share the good news, the euangelion, through his messengers. They would go and preach the good news of Caesar. The church that we gather together with, right, whether in person or online, the ecclesia, that's the Greek word. It means a gathering of a body. It also means the senate. It was the name for the political bodies that gathered in the Roman Empire. So get this, in the early church, you would go to your ecclesia, your, your gathering, your body, and you would hear a euangelion, a good news, from your Lord, Kyrios, who was not Caesar, but Jesus. The whole reason the Christian church was was dehumanized and discriminated against um, early in their, their 300 years of, of existence was pr precisely because they were seen as a political force. So, let's stop pretending like we can keep the two totally separate. And instead, let's allow our faith and allow our gospel and allow our justice-oriented nature following after Jesus, let's allow that to impact our politics and not the other way around. Because the poor, the oppressed, the chained and the, and the blind, they need advocates. They need voices like Jesus and they need voices like yours. So when people of faith advocate for the poor and the captive and the blind and the oppressed, it's not political, it's faithful. It's not political, it's faithful. So I want us to be people who serve Christ as Lord first. And hold our political systems and all of our public officials accountable to the justice that we know that God wants to see in this world. I also want to say this this morning. Calls for justice. When I was reading this passage this week, something struck me about the way that Jesus spoke. The words that Jesus used. The words that Jesus emphasized that are found in our Old Testament. The words that date back in our faith. 
Calls for justice create discomfort. They do. Maybe you've been discomforted in this message so far. I'm maybe feeling a little discomforted as I was writing and preparing to preach this word this morning, but that's the point. Discomfort is the point because discomfort leads to change. Think about in your own life. Uh, Let's leave the justice conversation for just a moment. Think about in your own life. When have you made the most meaningful changes in your life? Has it been when everything's been going great, when you were perfectly comfortable? No. Discomfort leads to change. It's not about whether or not discomfort exists in our society. It's just about for whom it exists. Because when injustice, when injustice is allowed to continue, someone is suffering. Maybe it's not you. But no, this does not get better without creating discomfort. Nazareth was discomforted. We need to be discomforted too. We resist change because we resist discomfort when it's not directing directly affecting us in our places of privilege. So, what am I talking about? For example, um, following the death and uh, the murder of Ahmad Arbery, um, I saw many people, myself included, um, taking the opportunity to proclaim again the good news that needs to be heard that black lives matter. And I saw this via social media and in other media forms. And, and again, every time this happens, I saw in the comment threads the same response to Black Lives Matter that says this, well, all lives matter. Let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the response of all lives matter when someone says black lives matter. Because I think this is exactly what we're talking about this morning. A couple of things about all lives matter. First of all, yeah, of course they do. Nobody is arguing that all lives don't matter. That's why the response doesn't make any sense. When people say black lives matter, they're not saying only black lives matter or black lives matter more. In fact, most of the time, almost all of the time, what they're really saying is black lives matter too. So in responding, all lives matter doesn't really add up because all lives were not chased down and murdered. All lives aren't followed suspiciously in in stores. All lives don't face higher rates of incarceration in our country. All lives are not taught from an early age to expect racist acts towards them their whole life long. All lives, yes, they matter, but all lives don't face the same injustices. But secondly, on all lives matter, what if Jesus had lacked specificity in his own message, in his own ministry, And in his own witness. What if he never named the poor or the captive or the blind or the oppressed? What if he simply got up and say, I come to bring good news to everybody? What if he just came to say nice things and to get folks to like him and to offer no real substantial change? Heck, he might have gotten elected, right? But he wouldn't have proclaimed the gospel, he wouldn't have been crucified on a cross. And ultimately, he wouldn't have offered real salvation to a world in need. It was the specificity that made Jesus' words so powerful. The poor, the oppressed, the chained, the blind. It's the specificity that made his ministry so mighty. And ultimately, it was the specificity that made people so uncomfortable to the point of crucifixion. My friends, here's my point. Specificity matters when we claim to be people of justice. At Lover's Lane, we proclaim clearly our mission statement that we want to love all people in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But on issues of justice, we get specific. Right now, we see food insecurity. So we don't simply say, we just want to help everybody with COVID-19. We want to help people who are food insecure. 
during COVID-19. That's our calling. We try to be specific. Specificity matters when we claim to be people of justice. When black lives are treated worse than all lives. When women's voices are silenced by men in power. When the poor are given only bad news and the captive's chains are tightened and the blind kept further in the dark and the oppressed held up in bondage, our specificity matters. We have to be willing to risk some discomfort in ourselves and in others to say this specifically is unjust. This specifically must change. This specifically is not coming into the kingdom of God. And Lord, somebody say amen, because we have to be willing to move beyond tweets or online comment threads and into actual real human conversation and real community change, carrying both the humility that says, I don't have this all figured out, but the courage that says, I know that it can be better. I don't have this all figured out, but I know it can be better. Can we talk? Can we work? Can we try? When we risk that kind of discomfort for ourselves and for others, we begin to really proclaim the gospel. We become the gospel of justice and the kingdom of Jesus, or the kingdom that Jesus proclaims, inches a little bit closer. And that's ultimately the really good news that we need to hear this morning. Maybe if you're like me, I was feeling pretty beat up as I was reading the scripture over and over again. But then I got to this really good news. Here, do you want to hear what, what, what was impressed upon me? The crucifixion ends with an empty tomb. And our discomfort and fight for justice ends with the kingdom of God. Do you hear the promise that Jesus is proclaiming? Yes, you're going to be uncomfortable. Yes, this is going to be hard. And yes, resurrection is real. The kingdom of God is coming with a world freed from poverty, freed from captivity, freed from blindness, freed from oppression. Do you want to live in a world like that? Well, we have to fight for a world like that. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. And I want to say a word about that. Let's keep the good news train rolling. So this past week, a mayor in Wiley, I don't even want to talk about him or what he said. I'm sure you saw the story. Uh, basically, he didn't think that, uh, you know what, I don't even want to talk about him. You know who I want to talk about? I want to talk about clergy women. That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about some good news this morning. Because what the mayor of Wiley chose to say was specifically meant to keep women's voices quiet and to make them feel powerless. So, I'm not going to let him talk, and instead I'm going to talk about clergywomen that I respect and admire. When I first got to Lover's Lane almost 10 years ago, Reagan and I, if you haven't heard, we're going to be transitioning to our new appointments in about a month, so it's got me reflecting upon my time here. And about 10 years ago, I, I entered into this church, and one of the first pastors that I was in close relationship with was a woman named Reverend Donna Whitehead. And Donna was the mentor pastor for our children and family department at that time, where I served for about three and a half years uh, during my first time, uh, my first few years here at Lover's Lane. And Donna was an incredible mentor for me. She taught me how to uh, delegate like an absolute beast, which I did not know how to do before. She taught me how to prioritize and how to keep the most important things in front of me. I feel like every single day Donna would come in and say, Scott, remember, this is the most important thing. I said, yes, got it, okay. She was so good at that. Um, what I, but as I began to learn more about Donna and her story, and I began to develop a, a friendship with her, and I heard about what it was like growing up um, in Louisiana and then following a call into ordained ministry back in the 70s and serving and becoming this great titan of local ministry here in North Texas at Custer Road and now at Lover's Lane, I, I 
grew in respect for what she'd accomplished, the glass ceilings that she had to have broken to get to the place that she is today. But then as my time has continued here, I've also witnessed the hard side of this, and that is I've I've seen the offhand remarks that she receives. I've, I've seen the way that she's treated by some male colleagues that I find completely unprofessional and unjust. And, and I've also felt the sting myself when I've sat there quietly and not said something earlier in my life. Um, Donna's been an important person for me. But I, I don't talk about Donna this morning just because of what she's meant for my life, but also because what she means for the life of my family. This past year uh, at Christmas time, Andy Jane, uh, the, the little girl that you see her baby photos on my mug right now, she's, she's four now, she was in the angel choir uh, at Christmas time this past year. And of course, as a good dad, I had my phone out and I was snapping photos like a maniac. And I was looking through them afterwards and I saw this photo that I want to show you. There's Andy looking totes adorbs. And there's Pastor Donna in the background with her classic Donna smile, just absolute joy upon her face seeing these little kids. And I took the photo up to Donna afterwards and I showed it to her. And I said, Donna, I, I want you to know, and this is what I want you all to know, how much it means to me as a father raising a daughter to know that she's been at a place like Lover's Lane during her impressionable, so formative early years, these core memories, and she will never once have to question if she has a voice or a place of leadership in God's church because she has seen Pastor Donna up there leading worship and preaching and praying and doing everything that a pastor does. You know, I've got a clergywoman, dear friend of mine who said, I grew up at Custer Road and seeing Pastor Donna up front leading worship in her high heels and her robe and her stole and preaching God's word, that is what made me know at an early age I could follow a call into ministry. So the fact that Andy has been at this church and she has seen Pastor Donna and Pastor Kay and Pastor Sarah and now Pastor Didi, yay, Pastor Didi's licensed. And of course, Reagan, you know, uh, we're married. She sees her every day. She sees these incredible pastoral women in leadership, Pastor Don, Pastor Barbara. She sees that she has a place in God's church. So she doesn't care what some dude in a town she doesn't live in says about her place because she knows her place. And her place is in the pulpit. And her place is in leadership. And, and I say that to say this. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. The promises of the kingdom of God become real. Andy's childhood is different than I'm sure Pastor Donna's looked like. The voices and examples that she has are different because of the courage of women like Pastor Donna. And so thank you to everyone who fights for justice in ways big and small in the ways that you don't even realize because no, this doesn't get fixed overnight. But the kingdom of God is real and it's coming. It's worth fighting for. It's worth living for. It's what justice is. It's love in public. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this morning. We give you thanks that you are a God of justice, that you're a God who refuses to allow things to be not right. That you're a God with a perfect vision of what this world could be and you are tireless in your pursuit of making your love and your grace, your equity, your righteousness take root in our lives, in the lives of those around us. God, grant us the humility that says we don't have it all figured out, but God, grant us the courage that says we know this can be better and it's worth fighting for. It's worth discomforting for. It's worth listening for. It's worth conversing for. 
that's worth loving for. Thank you, God, for the gift of your son, for the healing and inspiration and also the conviction and discomfort that he brings. We praise you, God of justice. Amen.